Um, this psalm, Psalm 68, is a psalm that um, speaks in really dramatic imagery of God's power and uh, might and the way that he acts to deliver his people. But what's interesting, uh, we're going to talk about singleness and um, the status of those who are single in the church. And one of the interesting things about the psalm is the way in which one of the demonstrations of God's power and might and faithfulness is that he is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, um, and that he sets the lonely in families, um, which is a just interesting. This is part of the nature and character of our God, is to care for those um, who are unmarried, um, those who are without a family. Um, so let's pray the psalm responsibly, the first 20 verses. Um, may God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. As smoke is blown away by the wind, may you blow them away. As wax melts before the fire, may the wicked perish before God. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. When you went out before your people, O God, when you marched through the wasteland, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it, and from your bounty, O God, you provided for the poor. The Lord announced the word, and great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings and armies flee in haste, in the camps men divide the plunder. Even while you sleep among the campfires, the wings of my dove are sheathed with silver, its feathers with shining gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings in the land, it was like snow fallen on Zalman. The mountains of Bashan are majestic mountains. Rugged are the mountains of Bashan. Why gaze in envy, O rugged mountains, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai, into his sanctuary. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, we give you thanks that you daily bear our burdens, that you are a God who saves. And this morning, Father, this new Lord's Day, um, we give you thanks for the way in which uh, we, by your Spirit, experience um, the truth of these promises, um, that you are with us in all the places that we find ourselves, that you are with us in the burdens um, that we bear, and that you do, Father, deliver us, you save us, um, you save us from sin and death. Um, you give us everlasting life. And Father, this morning, may we again taste afresh um, these promises 
even this Lord's Day. Um, in our worship and in our fellowship together, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so, hopefully all of you have a handout. Anybody not have one? Um, so we are moving um, through the Human Sexuality Report published by our General Assembly. And if you look on the back of your handout, um, we're going to look a little bit at Statement 11 today, which is entitled Friendship. Um, it, it's interesting because I don't, I mean, it talks a little about friendship, but really what the emphasis of this paragraph is on is, is on uh, singleness and, and the status of singles um, in the church, those who are unmarried. And so um, before we get into um, the details of the paragraph itself, I wanted to take some time this morning um, just to talk about singleness, um, do a kind of theological exploration of what it means um, biblically um, to be unmarried. Um, what, is the, what is particular about that calling um, in our lives according to the scriptures um, um, that we might think about it together uh, with one another. Um, the first thing I would say is that it's important to remember that to be single or unmarried as a Christian is um, a very common calling in the church. In some ways, it's the most common um, calling um, in the church, which is um, good to think about. Um, I think sometimes we just kind of isolate the singles as the people you know who are not married, who are at least 20 or so, um, um, and usually it stops, you know, before um, folks get um, um, too old, um, that sort of category that we think about as singles. But, but really, the, the category of a person who's unmarried is far um, broader than that. It includes certainly those who are not yet married, but might one day be. Um, but it also includes um, those whose marriages have ended, right? Um, um, and that's a large category. Um, you know, because of the statistics today in terms of divorce, um, many people experience singleness um, because of the, the um, dissolution of their marriage um, for one reason or another. Um, but of course, um, also, um, everyone who's married, um, if they don't have their marriage ended by divorce, will have their marriage ended by death, um, unless there's some unusual circumstance where um, both spouses die at the same uh, moment in time. Um, you know, many, many of us, half of us, um, so to speak, at least, um, will know what it is, um, even those of us whose marriages last until one of um, the husband or wife dies, will know what it is to be single. Um, and of course, all of us begin our lives um, unmarried um, and continue in that state for a number of years. Um, I've almost been married um, 20 years, um, and yet I was married when I was 22, so still in my life I've been single longer than I've been uh, a married person. Um, and, and, you know, who knows what the Lord has um, for me um, in that regard in the future as well. Um, all of us, the point is, will be called to singleness by Christ at some point in our lives. Um, and for many of us, we'll be called into this status more than once. Um, it's very possible that many of us will be unmarried for a time and then married, um, perhaps for many, many decades. But then we might be called by the Lord to spend um, the last decade of our life as an unmarried person again. The Lord takes our, our spouse and before he takes us. Um, and so that, it's, there's something to think about that, that category of singleness as being broader um, and, and very common. It's, it's not, um, in many ways, it's the, it's, you know, it's the fundamental um, nature to the quality of singleness. Um, so as we think more deeply about singleness in the church, um, what does that um, calling look like? We talked several weeks ago about 
in our sermon about the calming in a state of marriage um, at some length, and it's good now to think about um, what it is to be called to an unmarried state. Uh, for the Christian, I write here, singleness means sexual purity expressed as abstinence from sexual intimacy. And of course, that is one of the core uh, realities of what it means to be single as a Christian, is to, be, um, to abstain from sexual activity, um, because um, sexual intimacy um, is reserved for the estate of marriage and for the covenant of marriage. And so there is that kind of fundamental, um, I don't want to really describe it as a negative calling, but a, but a calling um, of, of limitation. Um, that you're embracing um, that limit on your sexual life. Um, but in a positive sense, um, singles are called not just away from sexual intimacy, um, but into something else as well. In a positive sense, singleness as a Christian means to be free from the responsibilities of a spouse and children um, in order to serve the Lord Jesus and the church. And this is the way that the Bible consistently talks about uh, singleness, that it is a particular calling um, that the Lord um, um, puts people in. It's a kind of vocation um, for folks. Um, Paul, of course, at some length talks about singleness and marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. And I think some of the context of his advice there, um, particularly to those, you know, the, to remain wherever station you are in terms of being married or unmarried, um, has to do with Paul's anticipation of uh, the prophecies of the Lord Jesus um, coming um, about very soon. He talks about how the end is near and the time is drawing short. And there I believe he's referring to um, the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the, the upheaval that Jesus predicted that would precede um, that destruction. Um, and so he, he believes that Jesus um, knew what he was saying when he predicted that all those things would happen um, within the time span of a generation. Uh, but still in 1 Corinthians 7, there are uh, principles that, that move beyond that time of crisis um, that, um, that Paul wrote into uh, most immediately. So let me just read this passage from 1 Corinthians I have printed on your handout here. Um, Paul says, and, and very, Paul's very pastoral here. I mean, he's always very pastoral, but certainly he is here. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And so inherent behind that statement is Paul's understanding that wherever you are um, in your life, generally, but specifically in terms of your state of whether you're married or not, is not an accident. It's something that the Lord um, has called you to. He's assigned you unto this status. Um, there's, a, there's intentionality. There's a particular um, calling there from the Lord. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body or spirit, body and spirit, rather. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Um, and so, what Paul is saying there, and he's not saying you know, the married man or the married woman is anxious about worldly things necessarily in a sinful way or in a, in a way that's uh, wicked, um, but he's just simply saying that folks in that estate are called to particular kinds of anxieties and worries about their spouse or their children. Um, there's a certain responsibility that they have um, toward that person, um, where the person who is unmarried is 
does not have those same anxieties, um, those same um, concerns. And so they are free then to be, as Paul so interestingly puts it, anxious about the things of the Lord, um, which I think is a, it's interesting that he makes that parallel, right? Um, and, and, and he says, essentially that person, um, what he wants for that person is to be secure in their undivided devotion to the Lord. Um, and I think that's a beautiful picture of the, the gift of singleness, the gift of being unmarried, um, is that, that there is a, a deeper freedom um, to set your heart um, fully on the Lord in a way that is unmixed uh, by um, anxieties or concerns that have to do with your, your spouse or your children. Um, and so, so Paul, certainly Paul understands this for himself, his own um, status as a single man, unmarried man, that it gives him the capacity to fully um, be concerned with the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. Um, that, that phrase even is just, a, those are great descriptions of the vocation of singleness. Um, our Lord also spoke about um, the vocation and calling of singleness in Matthew 19, um, after giving instruction to his disciples um, about um, divorce and, and essentially saying that divorce is a, uh, only permitted in, in very narrow um, and particular circumstances. Um, the disciples said to him in response to that teaching, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry, right? It's a moment of um, interesting honesty <laughs> from the, the apostles. Um, if you're going to restrict divorce like this, um, Jesus, um, who, can, who can be married, right? Um, um, and uh, Jesus does not um, alleviate their anxiety about um, the the uh, strictures of marriage and, and the, the, um, the way in which married parties are bound to one another for life. Um, but he does say to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. Um, so he acknowledges that, that what our Lord teaches, what the scriptures teach regarding marriage um, and divorce is a hard saying. It's, it's not an easy one to accept um, being bound to another person um, for um, the rest of your life until death parts you from one another. Um, so he says, only those who can receive this saying um, should accept it and should embrace it. And, but then he says there are others. Um, and, and that's important to say too. I mean, sometimes, you know, whether you're single or whether you're married, both of those are challenging and difficult callings in a sense um, because of um, the, the sin and, and um, brokenness of our world because of the fall. Um, Jesus acknowledges the difficulty of a married calling as well. But then he says, for there are eunuchs who have been so since birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. There, I don't think that Jesus is describing um, those who would mutilate their bodies and their sexual organs in order to be uh, made eunuchs, um, but rather, metaphorically, he's talking about there are some um, who have um, turned away from their sexual capacity um, to, um, to, to produce children. Um, they have made themselves eunuchs in that sense um, in order um, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Um, so there's this sense of um, singleness, um, and this isn't necessarily, you know, certainly some who are single will be married, um, and, and that's a, you know, a, a different kind of calling. Um, but there are some who are single, Jesus seems to be implying, who will never marry and um, who will never produce children um, and offspring. Um, but there are 
that's not simply a negative calling in the understanding of the Lord Jesus. It's, it's a calling that is given um, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Um, the fruit that they bear uh, will be um, a different kind of fruit, but also um, important and even essential um, to the church. Um, Paul then in 1 Timothy 5 um, begins to talk about, um, in a very pastoral way, um, the church and um, those who are single, particularly widows, so those who have been married but then are called back into the estate of singleness, of being unmarried. And, and, and he talks about the way in which um, women, and um, I think by implication men in this situation, have a particular freedom um, to serve the Lord. And uh, they should be honored to do so. He talks about a list of widows um, that they should be enrolled in um, who are embracing um, this calling of singleness fully and giving themselves to the work of the church. Um, Paul says, she who, is, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So there's, this is a, is, a, is a positive and fruitful way um, to be single. Or Paul, rather, is saying. But then he makes a contrast. There's also a way to be single um, that is not life-giving in the same way. But she who is self-indulgent um, in that scenario um, is dead even while she lives, right? So there is, with that, being free from the anxieties of your husband or your wife or your children, um, there is a, there is a, a danger um, for those who are unmarried to, to be self-indulgent, um, to not give themselves to the things of the Lord, not to set their hope in God. Um, so Paul makes that distinction. He says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. And that's a beautiful picture of um, those who are single in the ways that they can serve um, in the church. Um, that he gives here. And, um, and I think that's a, a, for those who are unmarried, this is an important thing to wrestle with, that, that there is this, this real calling um, to serve others in the church, um, that you've been freed from other anxieties, other concerns, and other, in order to serve um, the Lord by serving um, among his people. Um, let me stop there and see if there's any comments or questions about anything I've said so far before I continue to move through this handout. Anything that comes to mind that you want to ask about or discuss? Yeah, Eric. Yes. So Eric's pointing out that this seems very countercultural, right? That you would, um, if you're a widow, you're at least 60 years of age, that there might be this calling for you to just simply um, dedicate the rest of your life to the Lord, however many years or decades he gives you in service to the church. And I think that's true, um, that this is countercultural. Um, and, and certainly this is not to say that those who, who lose their spouses um, and are, are desire to marry again even after the age of 60 and there's anything wrong with that but 
I think that Paul really is laying out here a vision for um, a positive calling of singleness, that there is um, an opportunity there um, for a person in that situation um, to use all that they've learned throughout their lives um, to, to pour out for others and to, to serve um, others. And this is, of course, not only true for those who are single and 60 years or older, but also those who are married as well. Um, but perhaps there's a particular freedom um, for those who are in that estate um, to do so. And, and, and yeah, I think you're right, Eric. This is a um, certainly a culturally, countercultural way to think about um, that situation in your life. Um, I'll also say, I mean, certainly the New Testament emphasizes, and I've quoted elsewhere James's words, that true religion is to care for and visit um, widows and orphans in their distress. Um, and, and so there is this mutual, but it's important to say that there's meant to be a mutuality, right? And, and I think that this is something our church does very well. We have um, widows in our church. Um, and I, I believe that they receive very good attention and care um, from the body. Um, but what's important to see here is that widows in that situation are not only called to receive um, companionship and service and protection um, from the church, but they're also called um, to to spend themselves, to, to use um, the freedom that they have um, to give themselves um, in their lives for others also. Any, anything else, any other comments before we continue to move on? Yeah, Roy. So about guys, widowers. Widowers, yes. I, I mean, it's interesting that Paul addresses widows here and particularly, um, and certainly um, the language of widows is what is commonly um, used throughout the scriptures in terms of those who receive special attention and care. And I think there's a reason for that, of course, um, um, that women in that scenario are less, are more vulnerable, um, who are, who perhaps need more um, initiative and care for the church. Um, but also, yeah, I think all of these things apply in a, in a secondary way to widowers, to men who are called to that estate as well, um, that true religion uh, is also showing concern and care uh, for widowers in their distress. Um, and widowers are also called um, to consider the gifts that they've been entrusted to and however many years the Lord gives them um, to, to give themselves for others in the church. So. Is that another hand, Eric? There you go. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. You're a widow at 60 years old. You're not likely to uh, bear children again. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's fair. That that's um, part of the as the Bible thinks about procreation as being one of the fundamental callings of marriage and the raising of children, um, being unable to participate in that calling any longer uh, might be a reason to be inclined to embrace singleness um, for the rest of your days. Yeah, one more, Jeremy, and then we'll move on.
All right, let's, let's continue on here. Um, so we talked about singleness as a particular calling, um, free from sexual intimacy, um, but free to serve the Lord um, and his church. Um, but we do want to say, as I've put here um, towards the bottom of that first page, to be a single Christian does not mean um, biblically, scripturally, um, theologically to be without a family. Um, indeed, the sibling relationship in the church is in many ways the most fundamental relationship that all of us have to one another. Um, uh, I don't know if um, this stands out, but um, I make a particular point um, of calling um, the little children when they come forward, often um, little brother or little sister, those who are not yet communing, um, who might give a blessing to. Um, and I do that even with my own son. Um, who's not yet communing. Um, I say, you know, Tristan, little brother, um, I bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus. And there's, that's like, that's important to me um, because there's a sense in which that sibling relationship um, that I have to Tristan is even more um, fundamental than my um, relationship um, to him as his father. Um, that, we're, that we're first and foremost brothers in Christ and our baptism, our water, the water of baptism is thicker even than the blood that we share um, with one another. And that's something just to think about. Um, this sibling relationship in the church is in many ways the most fundamental relationship that we all have. And that sibling relationship is a status that the unmarried participate in fully. They're not in any way um, exempted from that. All of us um, share this. All of us are united in Christ as the family of God, the new family of God. Certainly this is the way, particularly, that the New Testament speaks about our relationships to one another in the church. And, um, you know, so you see that all over the place, right? We'll talk about this in a minute. Um, that The apostles um, have two primary um, ways that they address um, the church, right? Uh, maybe three. We could say saints as well as one, but beloved is a very common um, form of address for those in the church, but brothers um, or brothers and sisters is a, a very common and perhaps even more common uh, way. But it's important to say that the apostles didn't just think of that language on their own um, for the New Testament church. It came directly from the Lord Jesus, as Mark um, tells us in chapter 3, and Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and Jesus is teaching um, uh, in, inside some house, it, it, it seems. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Where? Sorry, who are my mother and my brothers? And it's an odd question. Um, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Um, these, um, Jesus was, of course, known for saying um, shocking and scandalizing things, but I would um, suggest that this is one of the most shocking and scandalizing things that Jesus said in his ministry. Um, um, of course, he's not critiquing Mary um, or his brothers here, um, as he does, and, you know, sometimes he says shocking things to the uh, Pharisees because he's critiquing them. Um, but here he says this because He's reorienting people's expectations about who it is 
um, that, are in, that are fundamentally important? Um, who it is do we owe sort of fundamental obligation to? Um, and he's saying, uh, my family is not just um, the woman who bore me or um, the brothers um, with whom I share uh, a blood connection. Um, actually, my family is anyone who does the will of God. Um, they are my family. Um, and so this new family gets constituted around our Lord Jesus Christ, who's the firstborn among many brothers, as he says. And, and just, I've quoted this from Hebrews, right, but I could show you a million places where the apostles use this language. Um, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Um, that's familial language, that's sibling language. And, um, and I love the way that uh, I drew attention to this when we preached on this passage months ago, um, that the apostle doesn't just call the Christians their brothers, he calls them holy brothers, right? Um, they're, they're set apart, um, and the sibling relationship is a, a sanctified one. Um, and, I, and I think that kind of language does matter. Um, if we call one another in the church, holy brother, holy sister, um, if we refer to one another in these ways, it does change how we think about our relationship um, to one another and what it, is we, what it is we owe one another, what it is we receive from one another, um, our fundamental kind of relationship to one another. Uh, and in 1 Timothy 5, on the back side of the page, um, Paul exhorts Timothy to have a sibling relationship with those in the church. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, right? So treat older men as fathers. Uh, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, uh, younger women as sisters, and all purity. Um, so essentially he's saying um, that kind of, he's using that kind of familial language to um, instruct him about how to treat folks, um, even though they're not, you know, literally, biologically, um, his fathers or mothers or, or sisters or brothers. Um, Paul also says in Galatians, for you are called to freedom, brothers, there's that language again, um, we should notice it in the epistles. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he applies that in 6.10. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. And the word household is basically the same word as family, the family of faith, right? There's this particular calling um, to see um, those in the church as family members, um, those to whom we are called to do good towards um, in a specific and particular way. And, and along with that, um, uh, this next point, and we'll pause for questions again in discussion, um, there is certainly a calling within the context of that new familial relationship that singles participate in completely. There is a calling for the household or family of God to provide care in a particular way for Christians who are called to singleness. As Psalm 68 puts it, um, God is the defender um, of the fatherless and the widow. Um, he sets the solitary in families. Um, this is part of what God does. As James puts it in his epistle, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Um, so there is a mutuality. Um, those who are unmarried in the church are free to serve the Lord and serve others in the church um, in, in a way that perhaps is, is less divided um, than those who are married. Uh, and yet there's also this calling on the church to particularly watch out for and provide assistance and, and care for um, those who are unmarried because of their vulnerability, because of their isolation potentially, um, because of their um, 
the ways in which they might have uh, particular and special needs. Um, so I, I think that's interesting that there's both this special calling for service for those who are single, but also there's a special calling to receive um, service um, from the church as well. Any thoughts or questions on any of that about the way in which we're a new family in God, brothers and sisters with one another, or how singles are also the place where we're called to serve? Yeah, James? Yeah, this is a, such a hugely important question um, for those who are called to singleness, how that dynamic that you, as you mentioned, of the extent to which the church takes this familial relationship seriously, um, and water being thicker than blood, um, these things actually mattering um, in the way that we not only speak about one another, but the way that we live our lives, um, the choices we make about our time and our resources and our affection and our emotions and all of those things. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's a fundamental thing. Do you have something, Eric? I appreciate that, Eric. That's Eric saying those singles who are seeking to be married, is that something that the church should more actively support and encourage and help in? And I, I think I think this is, um, I think a large part of the answer to that question will depend upon the quality of the relationship, familiar relationship, because um, I would love for that to be the case. I would love for those who are unmarried but seeking to be married or desiring to be married um, to to see the church as, you know, to say, I want my siblings in the church to know about this desire. I want them to be praying intentionally for me that God would grant me um, a godly husband or a godly wife. Um, I, you know, that they might 
even give me counsel in terms of how to prepare myself or how to seek um, such a person. Um, so yes, I would love that. I would love for the church to be more kind of actively supportive and involved in, in folks who are in that scenario. But that requires a great deal of trust, right? That's a very um, intimate, vulnerable thing to entrust to others, this you know, desire to be married. And so I think um, as those who are unmarried feel um, secure and, and loved and um, supported in the church, um, I think a natural outcome of that would be those who are in that situation who are seeking to be married would, would see the church as a resource um, to support them in that, in that desire, even as they wait on the Lord. Yeah, one more, Jeremy, and then we'll move on. Honored among all, right. But, you know, like, to have something specifically to help people get married, is, is, it'd be hard to have that without putting a burden on those who are unmarried to be part of the program to get married. I'm not, yeah, yeah. And I don't think Eric or I are talking about a program. I think... Well, I think, I think what I would just say briefly, um, Eric, is I think the church is often called to say more than one thing at the same time, um, and we can do that, you know? We can both say marriage is an honorable and good calling, and so much in terms of the sexual wholeness of the church and the culture in general depends upon the holiness of um, Christian marriages. Um, and we can also say singleness is a good and holy um, calling, um, and there are um, ways, you know what I mean? Like, we can dignify both at the same time, I think. I think we really can. I think we have to. Um, all right, let me let me do this last point, and then we'll get into the statement, just read through it. Um, I think it's important to say, as we think about singleness as a calling, that those who are called to lifelong singleness in the church, and never, ex and, 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 and here I'm thinking of people who, who aren't single temporarily, um, before or after marriage, um, but are always single, who never marry. Those who are called to that estate, to lifelong singleness in the church, and never experience sexual intimacy in marriage, are not less than whole persons. This is something we need to say um, clearly and consistently, um, and this speaks, I think, to James's point um, about there are some places in the church where it, it seems as though um, this is not ex ex emphasized, and it, it's a negative thing. Um, folks in that situation are not less than whole persons, spiritually, emotionally, um, in terms of the impact of their lives, all of those things. Intimacy, fulfillment, contentment, and happiness do not require sex. Um, maybe that seems too obvious to be said, but I don't know. I think in our culture today, um, not, in the, not just referring to the church here, just generally in the culture, I think there's so much of a connection between being a fully realized human person means to be sexually fulfilled, right? Um, that's like a baseline understanding of our um, culture, um, that 
that actually to restrict people's sexual fulfillment is to restrict their personhood. Um, and, and we really need to say as a church, intimacy, fulfillment, contentment, and happiness do not require sex. And, and here is a way, a particular, perhaps in our cultural moment, a particular way in which single pe people um, can be an aid to the church because they can be a living example to others that actually um, restricting my sexual um, uh, activity does not restrict my personhood, right? Um, that I can be a, a, an, ex an example um, um, even to those outside the church um, that, um, that, that having an active sex life is not um, fundamental to what it means to be um, a happy, fulfilled, whole person. And uh, that's a really important thing. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, Love Thy Body, that book. Yeah. Um, By Nancy Pearson. That's just a fundamental question. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Daniel. Yeah, I just want to add what you were saying before about sort of at least the world's attitude towards sex as a is treated as a means. Mm -hmm. Like talk about this whole concept of food or wine sure. or something that right. people believe in. It's a very subversive way of thinking because then you can it can lead to all kinds of sin when you start thinking about something like my my uncle even told me that he would encourage single people to live together and have sex before they got married because that's the only way you can know if you are sexually compatible. Right. And right. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of different mythologies and theories and things that you can kind of... Yeah, that's a, that's a fundamental life. assumption in many corners of our world today that if you don't live together before you're married or don't have sex before you're married, you're crazy because how do you know if you like having sex with each other? Right. And that's like you know, a fundamental, like, of course, that's just something you know or you don't know. It's not something that you would figure out together over, you know, years and years. Um, anyway, there's a whole lot to be said about that. But, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's all connected, all coming from the same place. Um, just to very quickly move through these references, um, I'm not going to read them all, but um, David's words about Jonathan are worth our reflection, right? He's telling us something. David is not just in that lament giving us his personal prayer journal, he's also speaking prophetically as um, the king, the anointed king of Israel, um, even as he does in the Psalms, he's giving wisdom um, to the people. And he says about Jonathan that, um, the, that their love for one another surpassed um, the love of women. And that's a, something for us to think about. There is a kind of um, uncomplicatedness that exists, is possibly exists in same-sex friendships um, that is even different from the kind of intimacy that exists in marriage. And that's not to diminish, of course, in any way, the, the very real intimacy and friendship that exists in marriage. But there is um, uh, in, in a pure and holy um, relationship between um, friendship between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. There is a kind of, uh, you can be without guile in a way that is um, profoundly free, freeing and, and beautiful. And um, I think we, sh we need to take that seriously. We need to talk about 
that there are other forms of intimacy in this life than um, those that are experienced between a husband and a wife, because the, the Bible talks about other forms of intimacy. Um, Jesus, of course, um, had this kind of intimacy with his friends and the disciples. I love that um, picture of John. Um, for some unknown reason, the ESV says he was reclining at table at Jesus' side, but then it has it a footnote. In <laughs> literally, the Greek says, in the bosom of Jesus. We should say that. We should say he was reclining in the bosom of Jesus. That's what he was doing. I mean, he had his head on his chest. I mean, these kinds of, you know, expressions of intimacy between uh, men and men or women and women um, um, are, are not inherently wicked or, or troublesome, right? There, there needs to be an opportunity for us to, to say um, there is real intimacy that exists in those relationships. And then Jesus makes this promise. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, house and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. And I think there's a way in which that can be a particular promise, and it's a promise for all believers, of course, but um, for those who are called um, to singleness, um, for those who um, resist um, the temptation of um, sexual intimacy outside of marriage and who relinquish that um, in this life, um, that the Lord does make promises um, to them, um, particular promises about wholeness, about um, community, about family. Um, and, and the promises of Jesus are trustworthy. Um, they are. Um, they really are. And, um, and I do think, again, that there's a way in which single persons who have devoted themselves to the Lord, who are abstaining um, from sexual intimacy, um, who are putting all their chips, so to speak, on Jesus in terms of taking care of them and, and satisfying their needs, they can be a particular kind of um, living witness to the church about the goodness of um, trusting Jesus, the goodness of having faith in God in that way. Um, it can be a profound um, testimony um, to the church, um, and, we, and we should honor in that sense um, the calling um, of those who are unmarried um, as, they, as, they, as they put their chips in on the promises of Christ um, to be with them, to give them a family, um, to set them um, um, in places where, that are good. And if, I don't think we'll have time to go through the statement, which is fine. We can do that next week. I think this is a good discussion to have and think about. Uh, any final comments or questions in the three or four minutes we have left? good. Let's stand and pray together. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that you give us. We thank you for the wisdom um, that you impart by your spirit. I pray that you would help us even this morning, whether we're married or single um, at this moment in our lives, um, to all of us really consider um, what the scriptures teach about about those who are unmarried and their role, their value, their dignity in the church. Um, Lord, I pray um, that we would be a kind of uh, community that would be um, a family to one another in a, in a fundamental sense, Father, um, that we would live out um, who we are in our baptisms, um, that we are united to each other as the family of God. 
And I pray for those um, who are unmarried, Father. Um, I pray um, that even the discussion today, the, and, and even more than the discussion, just meditating on these different parts of the scriptures, uh, Lord, would uh, renew their own sense of, um, of their value, of their dignity, of the way in which um, you are faithful in your son um, to care for them and to give them good things, and that they can trust you, they can trust Jesus. Um, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.